You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Well, I'm so glad to have with us today Mike Michalowicz. He's the entrepreneur behind three multi-million dollar companies and the author of The Pumpkin Plan and the business cult classic, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, with a popular and quirky website, which is MikeMichalowicz.com. He's a globally recognized entrepreneurial advocate. Mike's a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and now hosts the business makeover segment on MSNBC's Your Business. So, Mike, I'm so glad to have you with us today. And let's jump right into it and and maybe tell our listeners about Olmec Systems, the first business you created and sold. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's so good to reconnect uh, me and you. My uh, my first business, all my systems, was computer networking. Kind of a business I fell into. Um, never planned on being an entrepreneur, but uh, after working for another computer company, one day had this kind of fit for freedom. I just I can't take it here anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. Started a uh, computer networking company. Actually, I sold it to private equity, and it still runs today. It's, it's one of the premier players, and it's vertical. That's great. And and when you started that business, were you thinking, you know, I guess this is my future. I'm going to do this forever. Or did you did you know what you were doing when you got started? Yeah, no, no idea. So I never thought I'd start a business until the morning I started the business. I uh, I kind of just fell into it, and it, it was interesting the transitional phase you go through. When, when I thought about starting it, which was re- literally about a day of thought, excitement, exuberance. Oh my God, I'm going to be rich. This is the this is the, the secret path to success. And then when I started, and no one called, and I didn't even know how to make someone call me, then fear. St- came to me and found that ironically for entrepreneurship through all of my experiences now fear is one of the key elements you must use it's a great motivator to get you up in the morning and get you going the problem I started falling into is fear becomes a trap ultimately if you live in fear because while it gets you motivated every day it starts causing stress uh, disbelief uh, you lose confidence uh, of any degree and you just stay kind of stuck in this circular trap um, so yeah, no, so no plans on going into it, but but when I did, uh, I, I started discovering this is this is my passion. I love entrepreneurship. So then, how did you decide it was time to sell Olmec? What what prompted you to seek out a private equity investor? Yeah, so what I did actually, I had partners. So I I brought. I started up with a partner and I had another partner that we brought in as we were moving along and there was a certain point, you know, we we're making a few million in revenue and uh, it was supporting a lifestyle. You know, I came to realize a company that makes a couple million, uh, it, it, even 
you know, to some people that sounds nice, but when you have three equity partners all pulling a salary um, and maybe you're not running it that efficiently, we're, we're doing, in retrospect, a pretty crappy job at running it efficiently. We, they, my partners had achieved a lifestyle they're comfortable with. And I, I'll never forget, both those guys came to me and said, you know, I, I could live like this forever. And I was like, holy crap, this, you know, we've got to get to 50 million, 100 million. We've got to dominate the world. And there was the incongruency of vision. And this is another lesson I learned with partners. Partners. When when partners start together, it, as long as the business is moving along, everyone's on the same path. But at a certain point, as the business grows, there's a divergence in the vision. So there wasn't clarity from the beginning. We didn't think about it. We both wanted a wildly successful business. That was the quote-unquote vision that we we had this divergence in where we wanted to take it. And I recognized it would be in, insurmountable. So I, I said, I don't want to leave. They said they wanted to stay, uh, negotiated private equity investment. Um, it was a nice, comfortable exit for me. And uh, I stepped aside to do the next business. So in that transition, what were some of the things that you take away um, that maybe if, you know, going back, if you could do it all over again, you would have done some things different. What would they be? Well, the, the clarity and vision is like a big deal. You know, to really have clarity on what I wanted out of the business in regards to you know, its monetary performance, um, what the company would mean to me almost on an emotional level, and how would I be representative of the company. Um, and I discuss that with your partners. Like I, I never really thought about that, um, to really have absolute clarity of what we want. The other thing is there was no trigger points. There was no metrics or measurements in place. Um, I wish I did that. I wish I knew what myself and my, my two other partners wanted with absolute clarity, but then also some ability to adjust the company if we're not hitting what we agreed to. For, for example, one of the partners there, and definitely will not say names, you, you can find it in the newspapers though because there was talk about this guy, but one of my partners there, um, I, I consider his work ethic, let's just say, different than mine and, and the other partner, and I felt that the, the effort I was putting in to push the company along was disproportionately more than this other partner. Yet, we did this from the beginning, the stupid, you know, first it was me and this other guy, 50-50, we brought another partner, you know, and we started splitting stuff equally, um, which is a grand, grand mistake. So I even write about this, I wrote about this in my next book, is that no partnership, when it comes to two partners, should ever be 50-50. We should agree what the performance is, then when the business starts, each of us you know, for a thank you, a pat on the back for starting, it gets 5% each, and the remaining 90% stays within the company and is divided up over time based upon the performance metrics we agreed to. Who's bringing in the sales? You know, who's doing the work and getting the service, the service or the product delivered? You know, who's growing the team? Who's putting in the most hours? Like, those components, if I had divided up based upon performance, I feel my equity stake would have been much greater. But no matter what, I think it would have been a fair distribution. Even if it was less, it would be based upon actual performance. I wish I did that in retrospect. And, and so when you started the next company, were you wise enough to change that or, or you didn't come to those conclusions until later in life? Yeah, a little bit later in life. So my, my, every company I've had since then, so I, or business 
project even. I've done it based upon performance metrics and it served me well. My second company, uh, no. Uh, I sold my first company and in the immediate frustration, I was like, oh, I'm just glad to be rid of these guys. And I knew at that time I needed to have clarity. So I started with another guy. His name is Paul Lewis. Uh, we got together. We started a company called PG Lewis. It's a little shell company he had and we just, hey, let's keep the name. Callowitz is much harder to say than Lewis. And we started it um, and this guy, what I liked was his vision was congruent with mine. We really wanted to grow a leading authority in an industry. Uh, never discuss. I didn't have an equity plan in place till later in life and wish I had known it then. Uh, but at least we had a common vision, and that served us both very well. When, when you started, did you guys have a build-to-sell model, or, or was this a build-to-build? You know, build build? Yeah, build-to-sell. We, we both agree going in, uh, you know, I hate I use the word pump, pump and dump because that really has this artificial tone to it, but that is the words we use. We said we want to build a pump-and-dump company. Uh, we want to have an exit within five years. We did the full cycle in two and a half. Um, you know, it was acquired by Fortune 500, and uh, that was the vision from day one. And, and the business immediately started taking root with that mentality, build to sell. And and how did how did that come about earlier than planned? And and maybe just describe the process of you know we're ready we're ready to find a buyer or a buyer's knocking on the door we're ready to talk. Yeah, so um, it, it's funny you know. I really learned a lot about myself in retrospect. When, when I look back at the company now, many years later, I finally have come to appreciate how much luck has to do with everything. Um, in when I when we built and sold the company, I was like, "Wow, man, do I know what I'm doing?" And is you know, good partner, he knows what he's doing. Like we really know what we're doing. And in retrospect, it was luck. So, just to give the backstory, the company was in computer forensics. Well, computer forensics, we started back in 2002 or 2000, no, 2003, uh, 2000. Uh, midway through 2005, we're in the sale. Right before 2006, the company was sold, so two and a half years. And uh, bootstrapped the company. Company grew explosively. We were on, in our second year on a run for seven and a half when when the acquisition process began. And what we what we discovered was that. Uh, we had hit the right time in computer forensics. It was a very, is a public sector thing, law enforcement, but the private sector, there were definitely companies doing it, but it wasn't established. Demand was way outstripping supply. The second thing is the, the demand was, uh, was growing for individual companies. So where they were, or a typical project may have been $10,000 of forensics work, it was skyrocketing to hundreds of thousands for many companies. And one of the biggest cases in U.S. history, even to the date, was Enron. Well, we got the Enron trial. There was other forensic companies in there. We were one of the lead investigators, defense side investigators. And now you're talking about you know, significant revenue, you know, hundreds of thousands a day, uh, all, all of a sudden we were making by, by getting in that case. So in retrospect, a lot was luck. Like I didn't cause Ren, Enron to happen. I was at the right place at the right time and Enron called us. Um, that was a major component to, to our success. But, but the other thing is the recognition of systemization from day one. I had known for my first company that it's a mistake to hire experienced professionals and have them help 
you know, have them inserted in your company as much as build a system where anyone can come in and execute at the level of an experienced professional. So as we were developing the forensic practice, I spent and my partner too, but I, I spent an inordinate amount of time of doing the process myself, documenting it, and figuring out how to make it replicatable. Well, then we started bringing on you know, these quote-unquote rookies, people that had the right attitude, energy, and intelligence, but didn't necessarily know how to do the process from experience. Well, they come on at a much lower cost point, one quarter of the cost of the experienced pros in the industry, and with the right system, we're able to deliver at the same level, if not beyond some of the pros. So we were getting labor at one quarter of the cost and delivering at the same level, and I would argue in many cases higher, because we had such consistency in our process. That coupled with good timing and good fortune, company just hit it. And, and, you know, as my partner, Paul, and I used to like to say, you know, we hit the wave and just surf that thing all the way to the shore, up the shoreline, on the beach, and into the house. Uh, <laughs> so what, what happened? Someone came knocking or, or you know, how, how did the process go for you guys? Yeah, we were approached, and, and this is where we made a mistake. So, so we were approached by a uh, – a Fortune 500, Robert Half International. They saw one of our our team members uh, at a speaking conference, and that was actually a strategy too. We we figured out a way to stand out at conferences, which was really simple, really unique, but it drew a lot of interest and traffic in our business. Well, it, it attracted Robert Half International, and they said, "Wow, you you have something we could just plug into our company, something that we know we have to develop." We just want to plug you in. You know, they, they want to punch their bottom line. They want to take on another, you know, 10 million, show it on their P&L for, for the stock to go up. Uh, and secondly, uh, instead of developing it and, and costing millions, you know, spend it and, and you instantly have a thing you can plug into your company. And, and thirdly, potentially, you know, one of the strategies of these, of these large companies is you wipe out a potential threat. You know, you just take them over. So for them, it was a was a, st- a strategic acquisition. Um, for us, it was a mistake because it, it caught us off guard. It caught us way earlier than we anticipated. And uh, so we courted it. But the grand mistake we made was we didn't open ourselves for bidding. We just courted with one company and went the distance with them instead of inviting other people to, to go into the bidding for us. And, and do you feel like you got a price that was actually above your expectations, but in spite of that, there was probably more on the table? No, I think we didn't get above our expectations. We did, we did well, right? And so in retrospect, we're very happy. I'm disappointed in we didn't finish out our plan, so we could have gotten a lot more from, you know, the purely monetary standpoint, could have gotten a lot more. The, the other component is when you get bidders, it, absolutely. Now, you, now um, you're not... You know, there's a lot of guys asking you to dance. So, you know, you're not the only uh, – you don't have only have one suitor. You have a lot of suitors, and then they, they get more aggressive. The fact that Robert Half knew we weren't outbidding, uh, they could stretch it out a lot longer. Uh, the due diligence, they could leverage more and say, you know, we didn't like this, we didn't like that, where if you have bidders, you can say, well, you don't like it, but the other guy does, so sorry, and, and you have some leverage. You know, we, we defeat ourselves because we didn't have leverage by having just one bidder. So who was involved in that conversation around selling? You know, did you have a law firm advising you? Did you have an accounting firm advising you? Yes and yes. Um, we didn't have a, uh, a broker or an investment banker. Um, we didn't – we handled negotiations directly. And this was another grand mistake I made. 
my partner and I sat down real quick and, and said, hey, listen, he, he sold another p- business before to a public entity. I've only sold one before privately. It's a, different, it's a little bit of a different game. He had more expertise in it. He has a penchant for those type of negotiations. So he said, you know what? You do that. I have a penchant for running the business, building the culture. I'm going to stay back there. Because one tragic mistake, and we didn't fall into this trap, but one grand mistake that companies make is when you have a suitor and you hear that beautiful number, you know, now the, 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 the terms of the cash events coming, right? The biggest cash event you have in a business typically is selling the company. Yeah, you make a nice salary, uh, you have nice distributions, but when you sell a company, that is a fat, fat check that's coming your way. Well, the trap that many entrepreneurs fall into is you see that a, a fat checks coming and you emotionally start spending the money before you have it. So we knew this and said, you know what, I, Mike, is not going to worry about that. My partner, he's just going to focus on negotiations. I'm going to make sure the business that there's no cracks in the foundation because we're all looking at the money. I'm going to position it like we're not selling at all and keep this business growing. So that was a smart move we made. Yeah. And, and what would you say after the transaction took place, what are, what are some of the things that you learned from the experience that you think other business owners might be happy to hear about and maybe yeah, I mean, the same mistakes? Professionals, I, I w- first of all, I would never negotiate a deal yourself. Like if you're a business owner, keep running that business. Put the blinders on. Bring in a professional accountant. Bring in a professional you know, investment banker, someone that negotiates deals. Sometimes accountants do that, but I would bring in someone who knows what they're doing, specifically in negotiations, and can invite in other bidders. Bring in an attorney who knows what they're doing. Um, we had three of those. We have two of those three. We should have had all three. Um, and then just keep growing the business. Their lesson is you know, get bidders involved. I mean, this really amplifies your return. You can get a lot more money out of your company when there's multiple people interested in it. Um, and, and never spend the money, and this is the one thing I did right, never spend the money before it's in your pocket. That's when the cracks in the foundation of your company start showing up, and it can throw you off course, uh, and, and then you'll be lucky if you can sell the company. Uh, in the worst case, in the best case, you're going to get way less money than you could have because the, foundations are, are, you know, the cracks in the foundation are starting to show. So if we have an owner that's listening and that you know they they're hearing about some of your experience what would your advice be just in a general sense on how to start preparing for an exit whether that's going to be an internal transfer or a sale to a private equity firm or to a public company or a strategic acquirer what are some of the basic things they should be doing the basic thing is, is remove yourself from the business. It's funny. So I, I now I'm developing a consulting arm that, that's helping companies grow, uh, not necessarily with the objective of selling, but that's one of it. And one of the things we instill with the people we consult is we call it the four-week vacation. We got to get these entrepreneurs that own the businesses going on a four-week vacation, minus the sell, minus the laptop, I mean, really a vacation, because we need the business running independently of them. The biggest fear a suitor has is that if the entrepreneur Entrepreneur leaves is this business going to collapse? And, and there's it's shocking. There's companies out there doing 50 million, 10 million, 100 million, where the entrepreneur is still the linchpin to the business. It's still dependent on one guy. So you have to build systems that replace you. And you know you've got it right when you're away for four weeks and your business has not only sustained, it's actually grown. If it can grow in your absence, now you have something where you are dispensable. And ironically, that's what you want because now an acquirer can take it the distance. That's great advice. 
What about discussing an exit strategy with an executive team? You know, maybe you could talk from experience either through your deals or the experience of other owners that you've met. What what would you say is the best way to begin that discussion? Yeah, the trap of the owner, myself, was, you know, I'm, I'm the king of emotion, right? So I, I feel I'm worth more than anyone from the outside thinks I'm worth. I get why it works and they don't. The, the advantage of having this executive team around you, uh, and, and you did this before, like you don't wait until you have someone ready to buy your company and now you get everyone together. You assemble them well, well in advance, maybe even when you're starting the company. And if you didn't assemble them then, you better assemble them now. And here you have now an outside vantage point they can see the forest. You can only see the trees. But emotion is removed. And when it comes to positioning your company for sale, you want to remove the emotion. You want the other side to have emotional thirst to buy you, and you do that by getting bidders. But you want to remove the emotion from your business and make it a very calculated process. That's what your executive team does for you. They don't have They're not in your business, so they're not living the day-to-day. They can think on a much more calculated basis. They can leverage their contacts and their experience definitely to your advantage. You know, I would spend every penny I have on getting a good executive team because that's going to come back in dollars for the pennies that I spend. Great. So before we've got to wrap up, Mike, maybe you want to share a story about a real hard decision that you had to make and, you know, you were concerned about the consequences of, you know, going left or right and, and what you've, what you did and, and what you've learned in hindsight. Yeah. You know, so one of the things, it ties into acquisitions, but it's actually the aftermath. And it really was a heart-wrenching process for me. It, it threw me into a, a dark period, something you and I were talking about offline in part. And what it was was uh, the culture clash. I, neither I nor this Fortune 500 that had acquired hundreds of firms before us had prepared for the cultural conflict. And so here's this little 30-person company that my partner and I had grown. We're on a run for $7.5 million, grown. We get acquired, and now we get inserted into a department that does $200 million, a single department in New York City that does $200 million. And we're plugged in there. So we are you know, less than you know, 3% of the revenue. So they are the big, slow-spinning gear, and we're this hyper-fast, small-spinning gear. And you try to match these up, and the culture's shredded. And it wasn't theirs who got shredded. Ours got shredded apart. Within a year, we'd lost almost every employee. I left. Uh, I actually got terminated uh, for lack of performance. I, I could not handle this new culture that was like this Goliath, I consider kind of brown-nosing gamesmanship. Um, but the interesting thing was our company was designed to be such such a rapidly uh, responsive company that when we had a client call in, we were typically dispatching within 30 minutes of a call on-site for local regional work within two hours doing the work. And now this new behemoth, this, the turnaround, the exact same request took two or three weeks. We started losing client after client because they couldn't achieve the speed that we needed to do. And we couldn't understand how they could act the way they did. Huge culture clash, lots of personalities lost. Every, almost every employee left within a year. Uh, it was a disaster after we were acquired, and, and I regret that, um, and I blame it on both sides, not understanding the culture and the great differences that existed. So, Mike, why don't you just quickly tell our audience the types of things you're doing now to help business owners and, and how they could get in touch with you? 
Yeah, so, so ironically, after building these two companies and selling them, I started a third company. That one failed. Started a fourth company, uh, and, and you know, that got millions again in revenue and continuing to grow. Uh, and it's doing a few things, but it, my my core competency is I investigate all businesses that are out there. I love to deep dive into them, the ones that uh, succeed and fail, and learn what happens. And then I'm writing books. But that's my core passion. So I've become an author. I've written two books. Toilet Paper Entrepreneur is my first. The Pumpkin Plan. I'm working on my third right now. It should be about about in a, about a year. Uh, and you can check out all my findings. So go to MikeMikalowitz.com. Uh, just give your best attempt at spelling that. Google will find me. And if you want to check out the books, go to Amazon.com for The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur or The Pumpkin Plan. You'll find them there. Great, and we'll have all those listed on our website, ExitStrategySimplified.com. Mike McCallowitz, thanks so much for joining us today, and thanks to all our listeners. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at Divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.